This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, and I'm an assistant editor here at Christianity Today, and I am joined by our editor-in-chief, Mark Alley. Hey. What's up, Mark? Uh, I'm not sure. Well, you asked me that question. I'm not sure what to say about it. It's a terrible, it's actually a really hard question. Yeah. It's almost as bad as just saying, hey. (laughs) Yeah, right. It's like, well, where do I go from (laughs) here? I'll tell you what's up. We're at Quick to Listen. All right. And who's our guest this day? Uh, well, I'm really glad we have Carl Ellis with us. Carl is someone whose writings I've admired from afar, so it's great to have a chance to have a conversation with him. He's the senior fellow of the African American Leadership Institute and provost professor of theology and culture at Reform Theological Seminary. It's great to have you on, Carl. Good to be here. Good to be here. I should also mention that Carl's book, uh, Free at Last, some 20 years old now, has been making a, making new life, so uh, listeners should be pay attention to it. Any book that has a resurrection like that has got to have something <laughs> in it really worthwhile, so give it, a, give it a read, everyone. All right. Carl, can you just tell us a little bit about, about that book, though? Yeah, it's kind of a, a theological analysis of the African-American uh, experience. And th- there's a larger idea I had in mind. I was just thinking, how does God work through history and culture? And so I used the African-American experience as my case study. And uh, when you read the Bible, you see uh, you see that God does do things with nations, you know, that is, 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 he's got a plan for all of this. And uh, so the, the trick is to figure out how God has been active in, in history, and then to point to those kind of things. I mean, I think of uh, the case of uh, Athens, uh, you know, the altar to the unknown god was built in Athens, uh, but it was in response to a plague that hit Athens 500 years earlier before Paul got there. And uh, people uh, were told <laughs> that that uh, there was a great god that was beyond their idols that they didn't know about. So they built this altar, offered sacrifice, and the plague was lifted. And I think Paul astutely understood who that was who lifted the plague. And on and on and on, uh, you see this throughout Throughout Scripture, God saying that, oh, he raises this uh, this nation up or that nation up or takes this nation down, that nation down. So I said, well, let me apply some of that wisdom to a contemporary, a relatively contemporary situation. And that's how the book came about. Awesome. All right. Well, I hope you get into some of those themes while we start our conversation. Um, and I'm going to kind of introduce everyone to what we're talking about today. So you are probably familiar with Lecrae, if you are listening to this podcast. The biggest name in Christian hip-hop, this rapper dropped his latest album, All Things Work Together, last month, his eighth studio release. But perhaps more significantly, the album is his first since Lecrae became increasingly vocal in speaking up about racial injustice, much of its beginnings in the wake of the Ferguson protests in 2014. And as Lecrae recently shared on the Truth Table podcast, much has changed since 2014. His new album is his first one, quote unquote, for the culture. In response to a question about whether Lecrae, quote unquote, divorced white and evangelicalism, he said, and I quote, I spoke out very frequently throughout 2016 in many different ways, and it affected me. 
I went from a show where there may have been 3,000 there to 300, but that was the cost. But those 300 people were people who I knew loved Lecrae, the black man, the Christian, all of who Lecrae was, not the caricature that had been drawn up for them. End quote. In the interview, Lecrae goes on to mention a conversation he had with our guest, Carl Ellis, um, where Ellis told him he did not have to identify as evangelical. Lecrae said to that, that rocked me because I realized there are these categories I don't have to subscribe to, but I can still be faithful to what I believe. Lecrae's Truth Table interview sparked a response from John Piper, whose book and sermons the rapper has previously quoted and recommended. And John Piper wrote this. My name response to Lecrae's racial identity development work is thankfulness. The process is proving from the roots of his union with Christ are deep enough not to be torn up by the trials of these sad days. And I would add to thankfulness hope. This week on Quick to Listen, we'll discuss the genesis of Lecrae and Piper's relationship, what it means when someone stops identifying as evangelical, and what Lecrae's actions and words suggest about where the church is today on issues of racial justice. Before we get into this, I just want to take the time to remind everyone that once again, this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today and Mark, I think we were both really resonating with a piece that recently came out in our October issue. What's it about? Yes, it's called Does Your Pastor Need a Friend by Justin Barrett. And as soon as I saw the title, I thought, as it was going through the system to be edited, I thought that's that's a great topic for us to be thinking about. I was a pastor for 10 years, and that was one friends? thing, uh, yeah, it was a th- hard thing to struggle with. I mean, I had friends outside the congregation. One of the internal debates I had was, what to what level can I have friends in the congregation? Uh, and I don't know that I ever resolved that. But uh, the pastorate is a very lonely position, and so to the need for us to talk about the pastor's need for friends is really important, and congregations just need to be more aware of it. Pastors themselves need to be more aware of it. Sometimes we are so driven by our gospel mission that we forget about the needs we have to have close friends who can be with us in hard times, check us, whom we can be friends with as well, yeah. The cool thing about this piece is it's part of our ongoing science coverage, and it brings in actual scientific principles about basically what our capacity as humans have for friendship, um, and then discusses how that capacity just gets maxed a little bit more quickly when you are in a pastoral role and relating to a lot of people in your congregation. I guess I'm at risk right now of giving too much away, but I I just highly recommend it because I think it has an interesting kind of twist where, you know, I've many of these articles, if we would write them, the answer would be like, yes, of course, pastors need more friends. But because we're actually kind of like taking some of the principle that's been done about research and social science, it kind of adds an interesting twist. It helps us understand it realistically. Bingo. Yeah, I think that's what what's helpful about it. So everyone, if you'd like to read this article as well as everything else from our October issue, you can do that by becoming a subscriber. That's orderct.com slash quick to listen, orderct.com slash quick to listen. And again, thank you so much for everyone who does subscribe to Christianity Today. Before we pepper Carl with questions, Mark, I didn't know if you wanted to share a gut check that you had to the news that we just discussed. Uh, My gut check was, I was, well, yeah, I get it. Uh, especially the notion that uh, Lecrae did not want to identify with white evangelicalism or evangelicalism in general, because evangelicalism in general is now just equated with white evangelicalism for the most part in the culture. And I thought, I don't know why more, especially black evangelicals, that is to say blacks who have evangelical sympathies theologically and spiritually, I don't know why more of them don't do that, because I would be super frustrated if I was in their shoes. So it was like, okay, I get it. Um, I really enjoyed listening to this interview that Troops Table did on this particular topic. I thought they asked lots of really interesting 
questions to kind of just like draw out where Lecrae had been. I guess if I did have one gut reaction, it was just kind of like sadness on his behalf. And during the course of the podcast, he just talks about kind of the depression that he had suffered from since 2014 when he began speaking out about these things and feeling really moored and questioning his identity and, and where he would be. And he didn't say this, but there were times where I just was wondering if he was wondering you know, if people were still going to love him after all that. And to think about someone who's really done a lot for the church and been so encouraging them for them to have been in kind of a, such a socially marginalized place struck me as like really sad. No, I do think he actually does talk about that feeling. Who will continue to love him? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, Carl, it is so good to have you here and we're excited for your wisdom and perspective on this show. I guess my first question for you is, you know, there is an existing pretty long lasting relationship between Lecrae and John Piper. Can you tell us a little about what you know of the history of their relationship? Well, I don't know a whole lot of history uh, about that. I know John Piper and I have developed a pretty close relationship over the years. Well, he read that book that you mentioned, Free at Last, and he really, he really liked it. And uh, so we became friends. He had me speak at a conference or two of his, and we kind of still say hi to each other. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how it worked out with Lecrae and, and how, 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 how they got together, but I'm sure that, that given the fact that Lecrae is a hip-hop artist and he's communicating biblical truth in this new, in this different idiom, I'm sure that, that attracted uh, Piper. So he probably reached out to Lecrae like he reached out to me. Yeah, and I know that John Piper is someone that has been, just Lecrae has like pushed his stuff before. Um, he was the only person that actually got a name shout out on this particular podcast. Um, I th- believe he was talking about really needing to know what John Piper thought or something about John Piper's approval on that. Yeah, Piper has a lot of, uh, there's a lot of African-American pi- uh, pastors throughout the country who really appreciate John uh, uh, and, and, and you know, his his writings and his conferences. I remember the first time I spoke at a conference, it was a huge number of pastors and about half of them were black, you know. I mean, it was it was it was an amazing thing. So yeah, Piper has a lot of good uh, ties into uh, you know in the African American context. I, yeah, I believe he spoke out on the need for evangelicals to address the race issue. I don't know, ten, twenty years before it kind of caught long up. time ago. Yeah, that's the, right. Before we the rest of us caught up with it. So that's right. He is prophetic in that regard. Yeah. Can you just say a little bit more, maybe about? why there was such kind of a following among African-American pastors? Well, because Piper was one of the few evangelicals who really uh, was concerned about this issue, you know? I mean, you know, people with evangelical theology or whatever you want to call it, the evangelicalism lacks a lot of things, okay? For example, how does it, how do we relate to social issues, okay? And and and, and the Bible has something to say about everything, you know? But uh, So Piper kind of just broke this, and I don't think he waited till he had his PhD and all of this you know, before he began to speak out and began to to notice some things. And even in his own life, I mean, he's tried to to live out his desire for racial harmony and that kind of thing. So I think when you're in the desert, you know, a, a small thimble of water is is a, is a welcome uh, is a welcome gift. You know what I mean? Not to say that Piper is a small thimble, but I'm just saying that he's one of the few uh, that would be classified as evangelical that would uh, that that has uh, spoken out, taken the initiative to speak out, and that and that speaks volumes. So I think it might be helpful before we continue the discussion if we can just kind of say what we mean when we are talking about 
evangelicalism. I don't even know. Mark yeah, and Carl well, held the same uh, definitions. Yeah, yeah, we might not even have the same, which is probably true. If you have 10 evangelicals in the room, you'll have 10 definitions of evangelical. 10 definitions as well. Because <laughs> that's one of the hallmarks of evangelicalism is that we're all you, <laughs> individuals. <laughs> right. Okay. I consider myself an evangelical when I first got saved, you know. And, uh, of course, then, I mean, evangelical just meant that you believe the Bible to be the Word of God, and, you know, etc. You know, you believe Jesus to be the, the, you know, the way to God and all of that. But in, in, in late, you know, lately, uh, evangelicalism has come to mean something entirely different. It has come to mean a, a, a right-wing, uh, marginalized political movement that was largely irre- irrelevant. And, uh, and there's so much that evangelicals are identified with today that I, for one, have a long time ago abandoned that. I disassociate myself from the term. Uh, the only time I would use the term applying to myself would be in, an, in a group of people where we understand what that, where we have the same understanding. But I, I cannot identify with much of what evangelicalism today uh, identifies with. I mean, yes, I'm, I, I believe the scripture to be the inerrant, inspired, infallible word of God. And all that, I mean, I believe it. But on the other hand, there's so much other baggage that goes along with it. I remember back in the 90s, or back in the 90s and earlier, if I'm in African-American circles and I said I was evangelical, you know, there would always be a question, well, what is that? And it gave me a chance to define what that means. And nine out of ten times, I'd get the response to say, well, then in, in that case, I'm evangelical, you know. But today, there seems to be this mixing uh between evangelicalism and conservatism. It's sad because uh, conservatism is an ideology which is vastly inferior to the biblical message. So is liberalism, by the way. Uh, I just don't like to see uh, Christians... You know what's happening? Evangelicalism today is doing exactly what the other nobles in Babylon did. They bowed to that statue, okay? And that's that's kind of how I see it. And I and as I listen to Lecrae's um, podcast, you know, the podcast on the Truth's Table, I could really identify with Lecrae and and what he was going through. I went through those very same things, the dark times and all the rest of that. The only difference for me was that I wasn't on stage and I wasn't. We didn't have social media and all the rest of that. But I went through those, some of those same uh, phases and some of those same pains and hurts and, and all. And I've, I've come out on the other end knowing that God is faithful through all of it. Certainly the way you understand uh, evangelicalism now is the way many people in America understand it as a social and political phenomenon that tends to identify itself with conservative politics. Uh, when I use the word, uh, I generally mean it in a more theological and spiritual sense, meaning uh, I take my cues from the historian uh David Bebbington, who, in trying to summarize what evangelicalism is historically, certainly in England and America, it's it's a commitment to the authority of Scripture as the ultimate authority in one's life, a commitment to Christ, uh, Christ himself and to his death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. It is uh, a commitment to... Uh, that people do need to change, they need to be converted to Christ and change their lives, and that they need to be active in the world, both in terms of their evangelistic efforts and social justice efforts. So uh, when I talk about evangelical theology and spirituality, that's, just so the listener will know, that's what I'm referring to, and so... Uh, and I agree with that. I, if yeah. that's what it is, I, then, then you can call me an evangelical. But, you know, like I said, most people... I understand perfectly why, and you're not, you know, it, it's not just uh, African-Americans who have trouble identifying with that word. A lot mm-hmm. of white people who share evangelical theology and spirituality 
also reject the term. So uh, let's, as we move forward, let's just try to be clear which which definition we're working with so that it will help our readers kind of engage in the conversation, yeah. It's kind of parallel be- uh, to this, you know, like we, we talk about the, quote, fundamentals of the faith, unquote. I believe those things that we call the fundamentals of the faith. I believe in all of them, yet I'm not a fundamentalist. Does that make sense? Exactly, right. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, that's why it's a little disappointing that fundamentalism has become a pejorative word because that's right. There's so many it's, of the fundamentals I happen to believe in. So exactly right, right, right. So evangelical has become the the, the, the new fundamentalism. That's exactly in terms of terminology. Yeah. yeah. Right, so that's right, the right. thing uh, we're kind of working with here at Christianity Today, which has long identified itself with theological and spiritual evangelicalism. And uh, just a heads up to our readers, uh, yeah, I'll actually be addressing this in a series of essays starting at the end of October to try to help us navigate uh, this word afresh and see if we can, very good, in a sense, rehabilitate or at least think about it more clearly. So we've been talking a little bit about evangelicalism, both as either, you know, a political construct to some extent or a name for a theological movement. But, you know, when Lecrae is talking about this, he also kind of talks about how he felt that it was a movement that did not necessarily allow him to fully express his racial identity as well. Right. You know, his black cultural identity was kind of for being forced to to check at the door um, once right. he got in there. I just, what type of reaction did you have to that, Carl? Well, here's the here's the deal. Here, uh, you have in this country, as as in just about every country on the face of the earth, you have a dominant culture and a subdominant culture. Okay, and so what happens is that the dominant culture sets all the all the uh, the standards, as it were. And if you're not of the dominant culture, then you're not quite considered normal or regular. I mean, just like I saw a uh, a, a bottle of uh, Dove skin moisturizer or something or other, uh, and and the label said for normal to dark skin. Does that do, do, do you see my point? <laughs> you know, so so what does that have to say? So if my skin isn't you know, is dark, then it's not normal. That's just the nature of the beast, okay? And so what happens is that evangelicalism, as we know it today, has grown up and developed in the dominant culture. It's a dominant cultural cultural phenomenon. I mean, the black church has been around for for a long time. But it would not have been classified as evangelical in the cultural sense of the word. And so what what is happening is that the dominant culture in every society, number one, doesn't even realize it has a culture in the first place, tends not to. And then secondly, the dominant culture tends to be oriented towards preserving the status quo. It's just like just like when I was a kid. We used to play King of the Mountain, and everybody had to try to push the guy off the top until somebody else got up there, then he became the new king, and everybody tried to push him off the top. But the guy on the top would always say, "Hey, hey, hey! Let's let let's, let let there be peace and tranquility right now, because <laughs> he's on top." Exactly. <laughs> right, and so and so that's just a phenomenon of dominant culture. Subdominant culture is not necessarily racially defined. Does that make sense? So, in other societies where you have tribal dynamics or caste dynamics or whatever, those same those same patterns come up. So we take we bring this thing back to uh, white evangelicalism. You know, white evangelicalism. Being a dominant cultural phenomenon tends to lean towards preservation of the status quo, and uh, and and the other thing is that there's something inherently wrong with any theology that peacefully coexisted with Jim Crow in the South and institutional racism in the North, and unless these things were brought to the fore by people who were just people of goodwill, 
then I think the evangelical community would have just gone all gone along as if nothing was was wrong, and that's and I think that's what Lecrae was 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 kind of struggling with in that he was he he believes, and I you know and I know I know he he really he you know he hasn't lost the faith or anything, but he he sincerely expressed himself in his art in his uh, you know music what he really believes, but at the same time there was a kind of a hidden. Um, a hidden rule out there to say that you cannot, if you're anything other than the dominant culture, you have to leave your culture at the door. If you're dominant culture, you can bring it in. All right. Me personally, uh, I was very active in the civil rights movement, very active, March with King and all that. And, uh, and when I got saved, I somehow got the subliminal message that I had to leave all that behind and uh, and just kind of just pretend like everything was fine. And I remember uh, my father and I would like to go. We 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 shared a passion for flying. He was a Tuskegee Airman and all that. He taught me how to fly when I was 11. He he just said, "Hey, how would you like to do some flying today?" I said, "Sure." And then we were on our way to the airport, and it turns out that we were dropping leaflets for a, a civil rights. Uh, concern. And I, and this is after I, I became a Christian, and I just said, oh my, I found myself pleading the blood and asking God to forgive me for what I was about to do. <laughs> oh, and then just, <laughs> wow. really, wow. and just out of the clear blue, I kind of came to my senses. I said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, what's wrong with uh, justice? <laughs> you know, and that began my journey to begin to rediscover uh, the whole issue of uh, of justice concerns. And, and that's something that the evangelical community has just simply left out. And like I said, you know, evangelicalism uh, coexisted with uh, Jim Crow uh, quite cozily, you know, uh, and, uh, and 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 there's so so that tells me that there's something inherently wrong. And I think Lecrae was picking up on that. There was something wrong here. That, you know, you a tree is known by its fruit, and uh, if the fruit is not good, and it's not good from a, a non-dominant cultural perspective, you know, then there's something wrong with the tree. And I think what what is what has happened is that American evangelicalism, in the in the general sense, has left out a whole side of biblical truth, a whole aspect of biblical truth. I I, I talk about side A, which deals with uh, what we should know about God, and then there's side B, which deals with how we should obey God. Well, American evangelicalism has been strong on side A and weak on side B, at least when it comes to social concerns. Let me nuance that in a way that, again, I don't know that you're going to disagree with, but I just I think it's important when we talk about evangelicalism and white evangelicals that we recognize a few distinctions. So, for example, I thought it was really interesting that you perceive evangelicals as being part and parcel of majority culture, and at least the evangelicalism I grew up in, we always felt like we were marginalized in the main culture. So we did not, in a lot of ways, identify with majority, what was then the predominant majority culture, an increasingly secular culture, and we felt... Yes. So, But there has been this, there's always this move among evangelicals to adapt their faith to the surrounding culture in order to reach people who don't know Christ. And I think the phenomenon that we've seen in the last at least 20 to 30 years has been a an acceptance of large swaths of majority culture in an effort to reach them for Jesus, not realizing how much it's actually shaping our spirituality and our church's life and our assumptions about money and race and all sorts of things. So I'd say that's that's where it'd be a slight difference. I could certainly see how in the South 
there was much more identification with evangelicalism in Southern culture. That seems to be sociologically a fact. In the North and in the West, certainly I come from California, things were a little more com- complicated, it seemed to Complex, me. Complex, right. I, I, I live in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I have this joke about Chattanooga, and, I, and that is everybody in Chattanooga is born again, but there's not a whole lot of Christians there. cheek, but but yeah so well that uh, that's true and and i'm and i'm in agreement yeah i know evangelicalism i mean i i kind of bounce back and forth it is as much a culture as as is a theological movement exactly it It always is yeah like i think you said at the beginning you cannot help but have a culture as a christian right 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 it's impossible here's the the thing about identifying with the culture you know it's kind of like kind of like a twisted version of what paul said to the those on under the law, I became the law, under the law, those who are, you know, etc. I became all things to all men. Well, it, 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 to the segregationists, I became a segregationist. I mean, you know, you see, the, the, that only goes so far. And I think the problem with the whole evangelical movement is that we were so focused on dealing with people's sin that we forgot about cultural sin. Oh, every culture agrees with God's Word on in some areas, and conflicts with God's word, God's word on other areas. And the only reason that it agrees with God's Word, God's word on the, in those uh, positive areas is because of God's grace, all right? But every culture has what I call built-in cultural sin. It's built into the, the protocols and traditions and conventions of the culture. And the problem is that if you are in a situation where you're not affected by those cultural sins, then you tend not to recognize that they're there. All right. And so what what has spoiled, I think, the testimony of evangelicalism is the fact that there has been this blindness to uh, cultural sin. And for those who are affected by the cultural sin, then evangelicalism or Christianity, let's put it that way. Let's talk about that. I mean, Christianity comes across as either unchristian or anti-Christian. And I think, again, that's what I'm feeling. That's what I'm feeling. A lot of people who are struggling with this, this is what I'm feeling from them. This episode is brought to you by smallgroups.com. Find everything you need to build, grow, and maintain a healthy, thriving small group ministry. Smallgroups.com equips you to develop your ministry model and train your leaders, to nurture spiritual growth in group members, to troubleshoot typical group problems, and also to avoid common pitfalls. Whatever your role in developing life-changing community, we have resources for you. Visit smallgroups.com today. My reading, and maybe it tells you about the small world that I live in, and maybe it's speaking to a change that is happening or has happened. Uh, I, I read Christians. I listen to Christians. I see books published by Christians at Ivy Press and Baker and Zondervan and certainly things in Christianity Today. And I see national conferences that are uh, so many of them are talking about social sins and social justice and corporate responsibility now. So my perception is uh, there's a large segment of evangelicals, including white evangelicals, who are very much in tune with this. But I grant that there's a whole bunch that aren't. But are you seeing this or you're just not seeing enough to make you happy? I'm seeing it. I, I am def- I'm definitely seeing it. I'm definitely seeing it. And that's why, um, you know, in some cases it gives me it gives me encouragement. In other cases, I get a little concerned because on the other side of the fence, there are a lot of people who are getting involved and getting concerned about these things, but the problem is they're taking their cues 
from secular ideology and philosophy and theories rather than from the Bible itself. That ideology and philosophy and all that, okay, it can give us some insights by God's grace, obviously, but it is not nearly radical enough to carry the freight of of really addressing these things. Only the Word of God can do that. And what, what I've been calling for for decades is that we need to do some theological spade work. There's a lot of theology to be done out there. This is, you know, sometimes I get the impression in high theological circles that all the theology that can be done uh, has been done. Well, that's just simply ridiculous. You know, uh, there's so much more to the scripture than that. And so, uh, yes, I do see some concern for, for some of these things. But like I said, on the other side, I have a caution that we might be just uh, piecing together a side B, let's call it that way, from uh, from uh, scraps left at the table instead of eating the, you know, the main course or something like that. Yeah, I see that as well, and I think probably the reason for that is there there doesn't seem to be theological resources available now. So the people who are angry about the injustice or the corporate sin reach for anything that will help them deal with it. But I think it's right. fantastic that you think there ought to be theological spade work done, and I make this Absolutely. I make this public invitation that you can hold me accountable for. <laughs> Anytime you want to do some of that in Christianity today, I'd love it because I I agree with you 100. percent We need some spade work done on that. Well, I could I could recommend, <laughs> for example, my wife. She does a lot of this. She's she's involved in a lot of this kind of thing, trying to really uh, unpack the scriptures in some new ways and some new and orthodox ways, yeah, by the way. Yeah. So those are my um, those are some of my concerns, and uh, and I try to reach out to people. I, I kind of t- take a pastoral approach to it all, and 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 I appreciate the zeal on the part of some of my brothers and sisters, both white and black, by the way, who are who are so showing interest in all of this and want to do something. Uh, but at the same time, I, I just know that. Again, from experience, having done that thing and piecing together from uh, all these theories and all that, you end up kind of getting fat and starving to death at the same time. (laughs) That's an interesting way to put it. Yep. Yeah. Right. You brought up some interesting stuff with talking about what you've seen in terms of writers and thought leaders being more willing to discuss race head on. I think that's the still the big question, though, of like, are these just individuals who are doing things, but you know, is the culture, are the systems that they're living in, are their ways of actually doing and living in the world, you know, done so in a in a way that feels welcoming to people from all backgrounds. And I don't mean this to kind of cheapen what these efforts are like, but clearly it's one thing to kind of like give lip service or learn how to say the right thing. But yeah, sometimes it, it is not necessarily going to go far enough or still kind of like resonate or land with the people that they're trying to kind of reach out, which is why I'm wondering, Carl, if you think that these like disconnects still persist, how it's possible to have someone like Lecrae be the mo- you know, the biggest name in Christian hip hop and yet simultaneously wondering if he's, you know, still welcome in these places. It's a very difficult uh, and tricky road to travel on when you're a minority or in the subdominant culture and you follow Christ and you've got a lot of, you know, people who claim to follow Christ in the dominant culture. It's it it, it it doesn't take a whole lot to to cause you to put up your guard. I mean, I I I talk about having spiritual scars all over my body, and I can tell you right now that ninety percent of them are from friendly fire. I don't expect this from from brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, I don't expect to be discriminated against or whatever. I I don't expect that uh, or to be shafted some kind of way. 
and it just it just it it hurts very deeply, you know. And uh, and and it just it doesn't take many people to do that to you. I remember I remember one time I was where I went to college, the city I went to college, and I asked for years. I said, well, "What's a good Bible believing church, uh, good Bible believing guy, Bible preaching church to go to?" And everybody recommended this one church. I went to the one church, and they wouldn't let me in. Oh my Matter gosh. of fact, wow! I, I, I you know I feared for my life. I, there was a two uh, about a hundred guys out in front of the church. They heard I was coming, and they just blocked me. And uh, it was you know, do you? I mean, I tell you something. It knocked me for a loop, and I went into uh, agnosticism for about six months or so. You know, just because I, I just couldn't figure. I mean, good night. These people are supposed to believe the Bible, you know, and they didn't. You know, as far as I was concerned. You know, now now that I'm older, maybe hopefully a little wiser, I would just say today those folks just ain't Christians. That's all. You know, now I'm not making uh, an ultimate judgment about their eternal state and all that. But as far as I am concerned, I will not relate to them as, as Christians. So uh, that's kind of helped me out a little bit. What's happening, I think, is that we, and we all have a tendency to do this, and I'm not going to get self-righteous on this, but we, we all have a tendency to cling to our idols, to cling to our culture more than we cling to God, okay? And, uh, or to cling to our position in society or whatever. And this is, this is just across the board. Everybody does this. And I think the problem with Christianity in America, especially evangelical Christianity, is that, uh, yes, yes, from the white evangelical point of view, yes, you know, there seem to be, you know, they, they are marginalized. And it's true. We, this culture is increasingly marginalizing people who, who call themselves evangelical or who identify with uh, the, the spiritual and theological aspects of evangelicalism. But... Having said that, it's easier for a white evangelical to get by without being tagged some kind of way than an African-American one to do that. Does that make sense? You, yeah, you perfectly, know, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. And and the other thing, too, is that I tell people uh, all the time, I say, look, I've been living in the subdominant culture all my life, and I've, I know how to navigate those waters. And I tell my white Christian friends now, I say, you know, uh, you 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 know, the culture is telling us that you're going to be joining me very soon. You know, that we're all, all all of us who name the name of Christ are going to be marginalized together. And uh, and I think I think we're going to see uh, a kind of a a different kind of a church emerge out of that. A church that really uh, begins to understand what it really means. To be pilgrims and strangers in this world, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Not that, not that, not that we're being otherworldly, but it's just that to recognize that we, that our kingdom is not of this world. Uh, we always talk about what uh, what we can learn from one another. It has struck me that at that the exact point, the more marginalized Christianity in general is in our culture, the more I think white evangelicals who are not used to that experience should That's be right. looking to our Hispanic, our African Americans, and others That's who have right. experienced that for some time and say, okay, how do we negotiate this? We're, this is kind of a new experience exactly. for us. Exactly. And it's a great, it's, it's, I, I gave a talk at an university conference oh, about a month and a half ago, and the, the whole theme of the talk was there are advantages to subdominance. Okay, let's put it that way. You know, we always think in terms of we want to control our environment, et cetera, et cetera, but we can't always do that. But there are advantages in, in being in the in a in a subdominant position. You're not trying to protect something. You're not you don't have a vested interest in the in the current order. And it gives you freedom to uh, to do what God tells you to do. So it's a it's a it's a good place to be, actually. Uh, and then you look back. My wife points out all the time when you look back at the people of God throughout 
the scripture, the overwhelming majority of the time, they were in a subdominant position. But Christianity in America has enjoyed, historically has enjoyed the fruits or the benefits of the dominant, you know, the perks of the dominant culture. And now that those are being snatched away, everybody's kind of shook up about it. But, but just rest assured, God is still on his throne, you know? Let me ask a question that uh, kind of gets at some of that, uh, but from a slightly different perspective. A few black writers, Christian and not, say that the black experience in America is so profound and so unique that whites can never really understand it, let alone appreciate it. And even some blacks whose theology is evangelical, as we've noted, uh, they refuse to identify with evangelicalism. You're, you would be one of them because it is so identified with kind of cultural whiteness. And others still worry that in attempting, uh, they would take it to the next step and say that even attempting reconciliation with white churches and with white Christians and white organizations, that their blackness, because these white organizations still will be majority, that their blackness will eventually be absorbed into the white culture. So there does seem to be at least a segment of this world that's saying, I don't know that we're all that interested in racial reconciliation. Uh, do you see this as a trend? Uh, is it a serious trend, important trend? Is it something to be concerned about? Is it something to cheer? What's your take on it? The whole reconciliation piece uh, is, a, is a very fluid one because, let, let me say at the ground floor here, I'm all for it, okay? I'm all for racial reconciliation, so I'm, I'm not against it. But at the same time, it, it tends to kind of revolve around a confusion between moral relief and actual reconciliation. Okay, let's let's take a biblical example. Okay, in Acts chapter six, we see that the church is taking care of Greek um, Jewish widows and Hebrew Jewish widows. All right, so they they were taking care of them, and of course, the Greeks were being left out in this daily distribution of food. Of food. So, what happens is that they they end up selecting these seven Greek deacons who took took care of everybody, but there was reconciliation in the church because the systems that were causing the problems were dismantled or reformed. Does that make sense? Yes. Now, the pro- the problem with racial reconciliation in, 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 uh, in the American context is that everybody wants to get to the kumbaya moment, but we are, we're not quite sure about re- reforming and dismantling some of the, the built-in sins in the system that benefits some of us so well. That's where the problem lies. All right. And if we can begin to see how deep this thing goes and begin to not so much try to change society. I mean, you know, we can't force this on society, but if we can begin to do this among ourselves within the body of Christ, we can model it. Then, of course, we'll have a lot of people who will imitate it, who will say, hey, you know, can you show us how to do that? And I think that's the sad part. We don't, we haven't modeled it within the body of Christ, and that's that's where we should start. Yeah, could you give me an example of where in the body of Christ itself there is a structural injustice that you think needs to be addressed? Take, for example, people who work for Christian organizations. they got to go out and raise their support. Okay. You know, you know, the, the, the whole deputation system. All right. Well, I can tell you right now that does not work very well for most African-Americans. I mean, it just it just doesn't because of the cultural traditions out there. I mean, for example, let's say I want to raise my support among churches. Let's say I decide to raise my support among among black churches. All right. Well, first of all, in African-American churches, I mean, I'm talking kind of traditional African-American churches. They have no concept of parachurch ministry and that kind of thing. It's it's all, you know, it's all the church. It might be possible for me to raise my support among those churches, 
but it would take 110% of my time to do it. <laughs> so I, I would never end up getting out on the field because they don't understand that. But in, but, but, but in white churches, there is a, a tradition of that kind of thing, you know, give them a pack of uh, 12 envelopes, say put so much in per, per month. That kind of, uh, of, of what I would call deputation technology, uh, it's, it works much better in a white context because that's just part of the culture. It's not, it's, again, it's not a racial thing so much as much as it is a cultural thing. And so that's, that's, that's one of those things. So, so you, you, you get some African-Americans, you get some whites, and you turn them loose and go out and raise, you know, put, tell them to go out and raise the support. And, you know, generally speaking, I can tell you that the whites will be far more successful. And uh, and then you you wonder well what's wrong with these 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 African Americans here why can't they do as well I guess what I'm having a hard time I see that as being a serious difference in between white and black culture I'm having a hard time understanding how, what the relationship between that so a group a group of people are having a conversation about having reconciliation between white and blacks I'm not quite sure what the what the what the whites or the blacks would have to do to alleviate that and how that would help what, what I'm saying is basically that it's reconciliation is a lot more than kumbaya. I mean, it involves that obviously, but we there are traditions and systems and cultural protocols, whatever, that are there that are working against reconciliation. And 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 until we deal with those things, then we're not going to really have reconciliation. I mean, you know, and there's a lot of people who are who are giving up on it because they're saying, well, people just do not want to, you know, do not want to take this thing far enough to make it to make it work. Now, if you even you go to the white church, then you run into there are people in our churches that are just still racist. Let's face it. I mean, look, I, I'm I'm in I'm in, I'm a Presbyterian right now. Okay, wasn't raised Presbyterian, but I'm a Presbyterian, and I've actually I actually know of cases where there have been elders in some churches who really believe that American slavery was biblically sound. Now, you know what? How do you how do you deal with that kind of thing? You know, and so with that kind of attitude, you know, it, it makes it much harder. It makes it much harder. Go back to Acts chapter six. What if the Hebrew widows? Uh, had said, oh, we feel so bad that the Greeks are being left out. Oh, wow, we, we, we're really sorry about that. Uh, let's get together and, and just kind of just fellowship or something. If that's all they did, then they never would have solved the problem. But they actually restructured the whole the whole distribution system so that that took out the uh, the inequities and, 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 and solved the problem. As a matter of fact, you never hear of uh, of any of the widows uh, complaining after that about being left out the daily distribution of food. So that's all I'm saying is that there are some there are some systems in place that that tend to work against it. And uh, and if we don't deal with those systems, then we're not going to get very far. And I, I think that you also kind of run the risk of people becoming what we've just talked about uh, cynical because they see a gap between words and actions. Um, yes. And and. Yes probably frustrated that one side doesn't necessarily recognize or acknowledge that there is a gap between those words and actions. I've been in many situations where folks, you know, you know, whites wanted me to do this or that or whatever. And what they wanted me to do was to assimilate into their culture. You, we, you were mentioning that earlier. Well, okay, there are things that there are, there's a lot of areas of interface I have with white uh, culture and all the rest of that. I speak English. Uh, you know, I wouldn't go into, uh, you know, First Presbyterian Church and speak Ebonics or something. You know what I'm saying? You know, I have certain values that are shared and all that. But but at the same time, for me to say, for, for a person to say, for example, 
well, we're going to play some music, and this is this is, is this is classical music, and I I I, lo- I love classical music, but to say classical music is acceptable, but jazz is not. I love jazz too, by the way. That's where we begin to get into a, a problem because you know um, you know that's part of who I am. You know, I'm I'm, I'm a jazz lover, and uh, if you don't accept that, then how in the world can I be authentic? Here, uh, and here uh, I thought you were Christian, Carl. My gosh. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah, there you go. I, yeah, I'm, I'm terribly worldly. <laughs> as we as we wrap yeah. this conversation, Carl, I'm just wondering if you, when you see, you know, Lecrae's interview and comments, what type of larger um, conclusions do you draw about, you know, where the church is on issues of racial justice today? I think the church... And when I say the church, I mean the Bible-believing church. Okay, I guess we're going to make that assumption. I think the church needs to recognize that it, it, it has inherited an inadequate theology, first of all. I didn't say it wasn't true. Now, you know, the Old Testament, is that the inspired Word of God? Yes, and all that. But the Old Testament, the Old Covenant was inadequate to produce righteousness. It took Jesus to come to do that. Okay, so uh, there is a—we uh, we, we have an inadequate theology in the first place, and we have to recognize that, and we have to seriously do some some some. We got to do some serious theological work to begin to unpack more of the biblical wisdom. You know, we are not very good stewards of of the scripture, so that's where that's where we need to start. That's where we need to recognize we we it's inadequate. Uh, there's much more to the gospel. Do I? You know, there's much more to the gospel than uh, getting a passport from hell to heaven. Okay, um, uh, much more now. Does it include having a passport from hell to heaven? Of course it does. I mean, I I rejoice in all of that. But there's so much more to the gospel than that. And we have to rediscover that. So that's kind of where I'm at. Well, thanks for sharing that with all of us. And thanks for the very thought-provoking discussion. Just as a reminder to people, feel free to give us your comments and feedback on our social media platforms. We're on Twitter at CT Podcasts. And we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash CT Podcasts. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, which is when I ask everyone to share something that is bringing them joy this week and also where they can be found online. Mark, do you want to go? Now this is going to be sound ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe you have a chance not to say it if you don't want to. No, I know, but I just, if I have to be honest, this was the thing that gave me joy this week. Okay. I did a pull-up. I haven't done a pull-up like in three decades, but I've been working really hard in the gym to just get to that point. That's awesome. It's a small thing for small-minded people like me, but Are you doing it bench was an accomplishment. Too? Oh, I'm doing all sorts of things, but that was kind of the mental. I mean, I can pretty much do anything you ask me to do in the gym, but the one thing I've lost the ability to do is the pull-up. Congratulations. So there you go. That's awesome. <laughs> one my congratulations single <laughs> pull-up. I'm not going to tell Mark how many pull-ups I can do. Yeah, I can imagine. Sorry. Um, go ahead. Go ahead, chain me. Probably six or seven. Um, anyway, sorry. Mark, are you online or available outside I of this podcast? I am on Twitter and uh, Facebook by that name. My name, Mark Galli, G-A-L-L-I. But uh, probably I have I'm, I make more regular outputs, I guess the word would be, on the Galley Report, which can be found at ChristianityToday.com slash the Galley Report, where I weekly set up a set of links that I, of articles I found interesting and then make commentary on them. Cool. Carl? Yeah. One of the things that gave me great joy is 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 our son. Uh, I, I, I have two kids. I love both of them madly, and I'm just very proud of both of them. But uh, 
uh, my wife was sharing with him um, a concern that she had in terms of dealing with a situation, and my son came back with a very wise uh, response. Just it just thrilled me because I know you know I know he loves Jesus and all that, and it just it just. Just to see him being able to advise, uh, you know, his mom is just was just thrilling. Okay, that was just that was just a wonderful thing. That's awesome. Are you online? Do you have a website or are on Twitter? Yeah, we have a website. It's called EllisPerspectives.com. And uh, one of the things that excites us a lot right now is that we are trying to be a part of those uh, of of doing that theological spade work, and we've started an institute to that end. It's called Makazi, M-A-K-A-Z-I Institute. It's on our it's on our website. If you go to Ellis Perspectives, and there's a there's a link to it. It kind of tells you what we're trying to do. So that's uh, that's it. I'm on Twitter. Um, I think it's just Carl Ellis Jr. I believe, and uh, and I'm on. Uh, I'm on Facebook. I've kind of, I've kind of gotten saturated on Facebook. I, you know, you get the five thousand folks. You can't, you can't add any more friends. But anyway, that's look me up on Facebook. You see that same picture on Facebook as you do on the Twitter thing, so you know it's me. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, my precious moment is that my people from my college are coming to visit tomorrow here at CT, and then I'm going to my school next weekend. And I'm looking forward to both of those things and to getting to talk about CT to a bunch of Messiah College students, which I think will be a cool opportunity. Oh, great. You went to Messiah College. I went to Messiah College. All right. Great place. Thank you. Yeah. I'm happy to to head back there and get to Pennsylvania and visit the campus. Of course, it's crazy. In five short years, you know, there's two new buildings and three that don't look anything like they did when you were a student there. Yep. Yep. <laughs> anyway, people can find me online at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Fair warning, since it's the baseball playoffs, I am basically only talking about baseball on Twitter right now. <laughs> you have been warned. <laughs> All right, that is it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening to Quick to Listen. Quick to Listen is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today. You can become a subscriber at orderct.com slash quick to listen. This podcast is produced by myself. It is also produced by Richard Clark and Cray Allred. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts as well. But Apple Podcasts is near and dear to us because that's the best place to leave reviews, which then in turn help people find our podcast and hear these conversations that we're having. Thank you so much for Carl for joining us this week and we will see you all next week. This episode is brought to you in part by Ministry Pivot with Russell St. Bernard. This podcast features important conversations with industry leaders such as Nona Jones, Bishop Walter Scott Thomas, Reverend Dr. Nicole Martin, and so many more. Visit ministrypivot.com or on all streaming platforms.